Well, you can uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to get there in a second. But this morning, I just really wanted to talk to you about a subject called <laughs> the truth about God. <laughs> and before you just really think that that's a pretentious subject, just let me, let me get to what I'm going to try and say. Because I want to talk to you about the truth about God and how he relates to us. Because uh, I think of this quote, I think it's from A.W. Tozer, who says, like, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I think that's very true. Your thoughts about God, your theology, is really the most important thing about you. And whether you realize it or not, you always are almost always having a thought about God. Even the people who are atheists, they have thoughts about God. And they're wrong, but they have thoughts about God. They are theologians. I think it was R.C. Sproul that said that, that everyone is a theologian. Everyone is. Whether you realize and have faith in God or not, you are a theologian. And so what we think about God and our thoughts about God, our theology, really will drive everything that we do, why we do it, and how we do it. Every single thing in our life. That's why it's important to have a right theology, right thoughts about God. And so the one question I want to talk about is this. Is God happy? Or I should say it this way, is God happy with us? Because if, if God is not happy with us, then we have a very interesting conundrum to go about. But when you think about God, how do you imagine Him? How do you imagine Him thinking about you? And what is His character like? What's His character like when you mess up? Or what's your character like when you succeed? Because if they're different, if those are different characters that come to your mind, then you probably have a wrong thought about God. See, the thing about God is that He doesn't change. And if there's a big difference between these two thoughts, that whether you succeed or whether you fail, fail and he, you have a different thought about God, then you, your thinking about God is probably not correct. Because look at uh, all the various conceptions about God, and what's the number one reoccurring thing? Like God the Father is this crotchety old man with a long white beard, and he's just really grumpy and angry. You know, if you've seen, or, like, or he's Morgan Freeman from Bruce Almighty. That's God. Or he's, if you've seen Star Trek V, he's this really mean old man that just wants to kill everyone. And no one's a Trekkie here, so no one knows what I'm talking about. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, whenever you see God in movies or whatever, he's always an old man with a long beard and he's angry. He's grumpy. He's mad. And it, that's the world's perception about God or what God looks like. But God is not just this crusty old man who's just angry that things didn't go his way. He's not just grumpy that the fall happened, that the garden of even happened, and now everything is messed up. You know, the fall wasn't a, a hiccup in God's plan. You know, I don't have time to go into that, but the fall wasn't just this big thing where now God's like, what am I going to do now? Okay, he wasn't messed up. He wasn't messed up, and now he's not grumpy that that happened and that it messed up his whole plan. Because even in the midst of all of this tragedy and all this heartache that we talk about and we see every single day, God is still sovereign and he's still faithful. It was Martin Luther who said this, that to know God aright is to recognize that with him there is nothing but kindness and mercy. But those who feel that God is angry and unmerciful do not know God aright. If you think that God is just this unmerciful, angry God, you don't know God. And so the first thing I want to talk to you about is a common misconception. A common misconception, that is, that God is grumpy. 
You know, I just did like a quick Google search when I was doing this. And you look at like God hates people. There's all these signs and these people that are having these promotional ideas that God hates you. God hates you. He hates your family. He hates not just you. He just hates everything about you. That God is angry because of your sin and all these sorts of things. That God is just this really angry God. There's all this animosity towards God. And I think they think that Jesus and, and God the Father are just out to get them. That he's just waiting for you to mess up. And when you mess up, he's just going to pounce on you. Because he's, he's just waiting. He's waiting for you to mess up. That's not true. So, a couple misconceptions about God. First of all, this may surprise you, God is not like your dad. God's not like your dad. And listen, I, I, I was preaching this a couple weeks ago at my dad's church, and I had to preface this because I love and I honor and I cherish my dad. I really look up to my dad. In a lot of ways, I'm like a spitting image of my dad, so I have to in some ways. But I, I love my dad. But I have to say that my dad would make a really crummy God. He would make a very crummy God. And I think you would have to say that not only for your, your parents or your spouse or whatever, they would make really crummy gods. You love them, but they would not make a good God to worship. And there are different similarities. Obviously, uh, the way that our fathers interact with us and relate to us is sort of how God relates to us. But it will always be a broken and fallible image of that relationship. Because we have seen really just, uh, we've seen the worst in our earthly fathers at times. We've seen their impatience. We've seen their, their depression. We've seen their, their anger, their selfishness, and their temper. We've seen those things because they're a broken image of our Heavenly Father. And that's all very unlike our Heavenly Father whose love isn't flawed or is it, isn't varied. It's not unpredictable. It's always the same. See, that's why God is unlike our dad because he doesn't waver with ups and downs of life. He has no ebb and flow to his love. Like as it says in Psalm 118, 1, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, because His mercy endureth forever. Or you could say it this way, that God's steadfast love is everlasting. It has no end. That's the thing with God. His love is everlasting, without ebbs or flows. He doesn't change His mind about you. He doesn't get frustrated you with you because He invested in you. You, know, you could say it this way, that God knew what He was buying it says, in, I think, in First Timothy, that God bought you with His blood, with the blood of the Lamb, His Son, Jesus Christ. And now He's not frustrated with His investment because you're messing up. See, I think we can think that, that God is now really just really mad that He invested His blood in your life. That's not true. That's not true. God knew what He was buying, and He's not surprised by your failures and your faults. He knew what he was buying. Romans 5, 8. It says that God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were sinners. He knew we were sinners. And he bought our redemption anyways. Or as Octavius Winslow says. I like reading Octavius Winslow. He had a really good way of words. He was a, um, a contemporary with C.H. Spurgeon back in the 1800s. And he said this. We may doubt and debase and deny our divine relationship, yet God will never disown us as his children, nor disinherit us as his heirs. And then this, we may cease to act as a child, he will never cease to love as a father. That's God our father. He's not like your dad. But also, too, we just celebrated this. God is not like Santa. 
We, have, we, we chuckle because we think that's kind of a preposterous statement. But God is not like Santa. Santa Claus is this like sort of pop cultural phenomenon thing. He sort of becomes sort of almost like this pseudo deity because he knows he knows whether you're naughty or nice. <laughs> And, and, you know, if you believe that God is all about rewarding the good people and judging the bad people, guess what? You don't believe in God, you believe in Santa Claus. That's not God. God is not keeping some heavenly naughty or nice list from which he's going to dispense grace to the nice people and judgment to the naughty people. That's, that's not what's happening here. That's not how God interacts with us. One writer says it this way, Jesus is not, thank God, Santa Claus. He, came, he will come to the world's sins with no list to check, no test to grade, and no debts to collect, no scores to settle. He will wipe away the handwriting that was against us and nail it to his cross. See, that, that's why it, God's not Santa Claus. He doesn't, we'll get to that in a minute, but also God is not a dictator. So God's not like your dad, he's not like Santa Claus, and he's not like Joseph Stalin. He's not like a dictator that just wants to hem you in. You know, sometimes I think a lot of people think that. A lot of people think, oh, you're a Christian, so you have to obey all those rules, right? You have to obey all those really weird and strict laws, right? See, if, if people think that about our religion, then they have, we've done a really good, a really bad job at explaining what our faith is all about. Because the law isn't something to keep you in. It's something to usher you into something else. See, a lot of people that the, think that the law of God in this Bible is just a big rule book and to try and keep you away from all the good things in life, so to speak. All the things that can give you happiness or pleasure or whatever. But that's not true. The law is not something that, that, that makes you not enjoy stuff. It leaves you into something. It leads you into joy. God's law and demand for obedience and holiness aren't His way of robbing us of joy. No, through it, God is leading us into joy. As it says in Psalm 16, Thou wilt show me the path of life, and Thy presence is fullness of joy, and at Thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is leading us into that by His law. His law is really a shepherd into His joy. And also, lastly, God is another misconception. God is not karmic. God is not a God of karma. He's not a God that varies and fluctuates. That's sort of what we were saying about Santa Claus. But God doesn't judge us on the measure or the merit of our performance. You know, that the, the, you could say it this way. that The economy of God isn't, isn't if you do certain things. So if you put this amount forward, that God will come through for you. A lot of times we think that. Like, when something bad happens, it's because we, oh, man, I, I, I didn't read my Bible this past week. That's got to be why God is messing up my life right now. I, I didn't have my devotions as strictly as I should, so that's why I got this flat tire. Or something, some scenario like that. That's not how it works. That's not what God is doing. He's not, oh, he's way behind in his Bible reading or prayer, so I'm going to mess him up. That's, God is not a God of karma. Your life isn't ruled by fate, it's ruled by Jesus. And a little faith put forward doesn't sort of guarantee a blessing. You know, sometimes we think that, that if we just put this forward, that God has to do this. That your faith doesn't guarantee a blessing. You're just called to be faithful, no matter what. And sometimes, this may seem unfair. 
Sometimes this may seem really unfair. Because we're doing all that we're supposed to. And our life is a struggle. It's hard. We're getting beat up. We have our devotions every single day. We're praying for an hour and a half every morning. We're parsing out the Greek. We're doing everything that we can in the Bible. And we're still struggling to pay our weekly rent. And this person over here, he's not really studying a lot. Every now and then or whatever. And he's being, he's flourishing. He's thriving. Why? Because God just calls you to be faithful. And trust me... (laughs) I wrote, a, I wrote a piece on this a couple weeks ago that you don't want God to be fair. You may, that may seem weird and odd, but you don't want God to be fair. If you want God's fairness, then you would already be in hell for your sins. That's God's fairness. God has dealt unfair with you through His Son. And now we can enjoy the blessings of God's unfairness. Because God dealt unfairly with His Son, Jesus Christ... He can deal graciously with us. That's what we are enjoying. God's gracious unfairness. Because we have life when His Son got death. We have His Son's righteousness and His Son has our sin. That's unfair. We deserved, uh, we deserved hell. But yet we are given heaven. That's unfair. You don't want God to be fair. And if you believe that your eternal fate is somehow dependent upon your performance, upon what you do, you don't believe in God. You believe in karma. That's karma. You know, karmic Christianity, I think, is probably the most devastating form of Christianity. The idea that what you put forward is is what you're going to receive and that God has to do this because you did this. You know, Christians are far too easily sucked into this. You know, there's a great book, um, I don't know if you, maybe you've read, I don't know, but um, Dr. Jerry Bridges, he wrote a book called The Discipline of Grace. Have you read this? Nobody's read this? Well, you should read this. Uh, it was really, really good. And in it, he talks about this. He talks about this sort of, this good day, bad day vortex. That's what I call it. But he, this good day, bad day sort of conundrum. And what he's talking about is, imagine, imagine you wake up on Monday morning, tomorrow morning. You wake up. At your alarm. For me, that's 5 o'clock in the morning. Jed, I don't know what your alarm is. It, well, I wake up really in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's, it's hourly for you, Jason. <laughs> but you wake up at your alarm, and it, everything is good. You wake up, and you feel awesome. You feel refreshed. You have your coffee. You have your Bible. You start reading your devotions. You have a great, uh, you have a great hour in your devotions. Then you have another cup of coffee, and you have, you have breakfast, and everything is going smoothly. You get out the door 15 minutes early, and you're driving, and it's just, oh, yeah, there's no one on 985 this morning. Oh, this is great. And I can get to my work on time. I'm even early to work. You have a great day at work. You make a sale. Whatever it is you do at your job, you have a great day. You come home, and your wife has already made you dinner. It's just awesome. You have the greatest day. In those days, we can really feel that, man, you know, God is good. He loves me. But uh, take, let's say now it's Wednesday, <laughs> the hump day. We don't wake up early. We wake up late. We miss our alarm. We forgot to set our alarm on our iPhones the previous night. And now when we wake up, it's, it's already 6 o'clock. We have to rush out. We don't have time for a nice eggs benedict. We have to just, we, ha- we have to eat a Pop-Tart. 
So we, we quickly put a Pop-Tart in and we run out the door. And we're on 95 now and it's awful, it's terrible. People are cutting us off and we're trying to change lanes and we miss our exit and we have to go down to Okeechobee instead of Palm Beach Lakes or whatever it is and it's awful, terrible driving. And you make it to work late and then you have to stay late and you come home and the wife has been crazy with all the kids and they have not been good all day and so now you come home and everything's just chaotic, it's terrible. It, you have a bad day. That's a bad day. On those days, we don't feel like God loves us. We can't say, yes, wonderful day in the Lord. Let me ask you this question. Do you think that God loves you more or less on one of those days? Does God love you more on the day when you had an hour in your devotions or the day when you had zero time in your devotions? Does God love you more or less? Because if you answered yes, then you believe in karma. You don't believe in God. Because that's not our God. You know, if he answered yes to either of those questions, you're banking on your works and you're leaning on your performance. And therefore, as Paul says, you're nullifying grace. Romans 11. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more of grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. And on our bad days and on our good days, God's love for us is the same. Going back to Octavius Winslow, he says this, Seasons vary and circumstances change and feelings fluctuate and friendships cool and friends die, but Christ is ever the same. He doesn't fluctuate. He doesn't vary. He is always the same. God is not a God of karma. He's a God of grace. So we had this common misconception that God is not like your dad and he's not like Santa Claus and he's not like a dictator and he is not a God of karma. Now we come to a resounding conclusion that God is not grumpy, that indeed God is happy. God is happy. And this is where we get to 1 Timothy 11. <laughs> it took me a long time to get there, but we're finally there. 1 Timothy 11, look at chapter, um, 1 Timothy 11, excuse me, 1 Timothy 1, verse 11. Paul says this, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust, and I thank God and, or thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, that he hath counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. But go back to verse 11. The glorious gospel of the blessed God. You know, Paul says that he's been commissioned to preach this glorious gospel, as he says, of the blessed God. Or you could say it this way. The glorious gospel of the happy God. Because that's literally what that word means there. If you look up the word blessed in the Greek, it means happy it's the same word that you find in Matthew chapter 5. Remember where Jesus is saying, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. He goes through the Beatitudes as we call them. That's we can say, Happy are ye. Happy are you who are poor in spirit, who are broken hearted. That's what it means there. Happy. Or you could, if you look at First Peter 3 and 4, you could also see that it's happy are you if you were reproached, if you were reviled. Peter says that too. So you see that God is a happy God. Why? Well, three ways that he is happy. First of all, he is glad in himself. Turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. God is glad in himself. Let me see if I can get there. And what that means is that... Well, let me read the verses first. <laughs> let me see if I can get and turn there. John 17, look at verse 20. This is Jesus' prayer. 
And he says this, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they may all be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. God is glad in himself. He doesn't really need you to be happy. (laughs) God wasn't bored before he created the world and was just like, "Mm, what am I going to do with all this goodness? He wasn't bored. The Trinity was a perfect trinity of happiness, of union, of blessedness. He wasn't bored or sad before he created you. He is perfectly happy in and of himself. It's a perfect sort of this Trinitarian union, you could call it that, of happiness. That the Father is pleased with the Son because of the work of the Spirit who reflects back on the Son who pleases the Father. It's this circular motion of blessedness, of happiness. They are one. They are a perfect harmony, uh, in perfect harmony in happiness. You know, and there's infinite beauty in that. And he is the blessed God, and he's full of blessedness, and all the while he is seeking to impart that blessedness. That's what he has come to do. But not only is he glad in himself, more importantly, well, maybe not more importantly, but more powerfully for us, he is glorified in his son. Look at John chapter 13. Flip back just a few pages. Look at verse 31. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. God is glorified in his Son. You know why? Because his law is satisfied. What did Jesus do at the cross? Jesus satisfied all of God's demands for justice. When we sinned, we, we broke the law of God and everything was ruined. Creation was ruined. Sin infected the world. But now God's law has been satisfied. Why? Because of the Son of God. What was perfect and that's now fallen will be perfect once again because of the redemption. Redemption not only makes a way for us to go to heaven, but it restores creation. What God, what, one day we will have a new heaven and a new earth. Because of what Jesus has done. And that means that there will be a literally new creation that's perfect like it was before sin infested the world. Creation will be restored. It will be made new once again. And so Christ, or excuse me, the cross welcomes us all into God's happiness. Into God's happiness. And because of the gospel, we enter into this joy. This joy of the happy God. As he says in John 15, these things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that my joy, that your joy might be full. So God is leading us into his joy. And I I think of this, um, if you've worked in retail, if you've worked in food or fast food or whatever, you've probably served Christians before, or people who go to church, I should say. (laughs) And I would say this, that I used to work at Panera. And I had to work on Sundays a lot of the times, Sunday morning shift or whatever. And I would, I would do opening and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I would work through the lunch rush, as they called it. And there was a lot of, you could tell, they just came from church. 
They just came from church with their family. And uh, let me say this, that Christians can sometimes be the most annoying people to serve. They can be very unruly, very angry, very annoying, and very just pretentious and pompous. And they were very, it was a very terrible testimony. They were not happy. They came in and they were just grumpy people. And it was a terrible testimony because people knew that I was a Christian who I was working with. And I had to explain to them, that's, that's, that's not true Christianity. I had to explain to them all the time. And Christians can be some of the most unhappy people. And I think that one of the reasons why is that, that we imagine or we have this confusion regarding the end times. Sort of like when, what's going to happen with these end times? And I'm not going like, to explain to you all these things. But you know, when we are in heaven and we are at the judgment seat of Christ, I think there's a lot of misconception about that event. I think uh, maybe someone has said to you, I don't know. But I think sometimes we think that we're going to be there. There's going to be this giant courtroom, and God is going to be sitting on this giant throne, and there's going to be a giant big screen TV behind him. It's going to project your life there. And the whole crowd of Christianity is going to be seeing your life in full played out, and then God's going to judge you on that. And that's not what's going to happen. God is not going to judge you in, on, based on your sin and what you have done in your life at the judgment seat of Christ. That's not what's going to happen. If you can imagine for, with me this. Instead, this is how I think of the judgment seat of Christ. God is sitting at this little desk. And when you come up to him, he's just going to reach back. He's going to pull out your file. He's going to pull out your manila folder. And all he's going to read is, paid in full. He's going to read forgiven. He's going to read approved, pardoned, redeemed, bought by the love and the blood of my son. You, you can imagine that when he opens this folder, it's just going to be dripping with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Because that's what has bought your redemption and bought your, your ticket, so to speak, into heaven. And it's not going to be based on what you have done or not done. It's going to be based on the son and the love and the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what's going to happen. He's not going to read off this list of all these terrible things that you've done. He's just going to read that I, you are not condemned because of the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. And what he did for you on the cross. That's what's going to happen. That's what I imagine happening. Because of what Jesus has done. And because of what Jesus has done, God can't be anything other than happy with you. Because you are in Christ. As it says in Colossians 3, you are hidden in Christ. So that means all of your faults and all of your failures, they are hidden in God. In the Son of God. And I don't have time to go into that, but Jesus took all of your sins and all of your sins are, are, are forgiven and forgotten and cleansed forever. Forever. As far as the east is from the west, your sins are forgiven and bought for and paid for. So when we get to heaven... God's going to see you are not condemned. Welcome home. That's all he's going to say. But also, let me hasten on to this. That not only is he glad in himself and glorified in his son, he's also, number three, because you may have been thinking of this verse, maybe not. He is also grieved in our sin. Remember Ephesians chapter 4? Flip over there really quickly. Because we're going to get, this is really important to see. Ephesians 4, verse 30 says... And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. 
So what does it mean here to grieve God? Well, really, I like how Spurgeon explains this. Charles Spurgeon explains this really well because he says the grieve really here means it's, it's anger that's, that's had, its, had the edge cut off because of love. And that's really what it is. Because God, because if you think in Habakkuk, it says that God can't even look on sin. He can't even look on it because he is so holy. Or in Psalm 5, I think it says that God hates all workers of iniquity. So how can we harmonize that with the idea that God loves us? Well, it's because of the work of his son. And now God's not angry with us. If you believe in his son and believe on what he did, he is grieved with you. He's grieved because you would believe that anything other than what His Son has done is enough to satisfy you. I've talked about this before, but sin ultimately, at its root, is disbelief. It's disbelief in Jesus and what He has done. That's the root of sin. You believe that this is not enough to satisfy me. God and His gospel is not enough, but this drink will, this person will, this substance will, this job will. This is going to satisfy me. More than what Jesus does. And so God is grieved by that. By His people believing that something will satisfy them other than what He has done in His Son. He's grieved that you would mar the gospel by believing that it's not enough. God's love for you doesn't rise or fall on the measure of your obedience. That would be very bad news. God's love for you is eternally secure in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And His disposition towards you who believe is one of everlasting peace and pardon and happiness, all on the grounds of Jesus' work on the cross. That's why God is happy. That's why God is satisfied fully and forever. And He is happy with you. And that's why... We can be happy because everything is settled because of Christ. Let's pray.